Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. You know, most of the time when the faculty get up to talk, it's been a little bit pre-programmed. Dion or Matt used to pick some verses. You know, we come and speak in our series on Ephesians. You know, you get chapter four. Matt had a perverse way of picking the hard passages for me. Uh, <laughs> Dion, not so much. But uh, actually, for the spring here, Dion told me that uh, the spring faculty were on their own to choose their subject. And that might uh, feel real free and easy, but it's really not, because I don't think anyone who's preaching ever has the right to stand up and talk about what they want to say, or even just to try to even see the world just through their own eyes alone. I mean, the, the preacher's trying to intuit uh, what, what God would want to say to a group of people, to a congregation. And you have to do that in large measure with just praying and, and sensing what you think that voice is telling you. Um, what do they need? What does the, the fellowship need together? Not just a, a small section of it, but the, the entire thing. And that's kind of a challenge. But that cliche, it's not about you, really applies to preachers. And if you have a sense that a preacher's going the other direction, that's probably not a person real worthy to listen to, really. Now, I'm making some assumptions here, which is I'm preaching to you this morning. <laughs> uh, don't, don't make that assumption with everybody who stands up here in chapel. There are other kinds of talks that I don't, I, I don't think are preaching per se, but I'm going to be preaching to you. So what did I think you needed to hear today? Or what did I think the Lord put on my heart that you needed to hear today? Well, I thought today you should hear from an older brother Psalm 145, 4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And Psalm 71, 8 is even more blunt. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Now, by way of context, I'm not like hinting at retirement here or anything of the kind. I'm not, I am not about to phase off into geezerdom. Uh, I do not want to uh, be a professional old-timer who gives crusty advice. That's not me. You'd probably look it up on, online and say, old rockers never die. They just keep touring. Old rockers never die. They just look like it. Uh, old rockers never die. They just shake, rattle, and roll. That... that that might be lost on you if you're not familiar with Big Joe, Turn Big Joe Turner and Bill Haley and the Comets. Those are even before my time. It's an old song, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Anyway, <laughs> you got it. I said, even before my time. I want to share with you the Bible verse that I believe made me a Christian. Now, I'm very aware of the theological imprecision of what I just said, so, so I'll clarify it. But... This verse is key. Matthew, well, these verses, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
a young man, not young by my standards then, but young by my standards now, in his mid-twenties, working in a church, said that to me at a New Year's Eve party, 1970, about to become 1971, and it was received by me as a message delivered directly from a God that had petitioned a week or two earlier who I didn't know and didn't know how to find. But he discovered me. Now, I suppose anyone's personal story can be told in flattering ways that look glamorous and in other ways that are far from glamorous and just reveal the weakness of that person. There's more weakness than glamour in my story, certainly, and it's not special. And certainly you can find Christian testimonies that are more dramatic and become the substance of books and radio programs and all that stuff. But my story of how I came to Christ is my treasure. And so I've continually through life tried to refine my understanding. What exactly happened there and how did it happen? And I've had to tweak it here and there. And I've always kind of leave it as provisional. It's still a process, a sculpture that's coming up out of the rock. And maybe someday I'll get it. But uh, for now, it's still, still being carved. I'm trying to understand it. One thing I know is certain through all of my attempts at explaining it is that Jesus is the only hero in the story. He's the one who the focus goes to. So let me back up. I think most of my Christian friends in my world today really do, if they were honest, believe I'm exaggerating when I describe how unconnected, how secular my life was growing up. And that was in North America in suburban Pittsburgh. I had almost no contact to anything like a church faith that you would that you would understand, I think, or that would be part of your background. Perhaps a tiny bit, but it's very insignificant. I somehow or other gleaned the outlines of Christian faith. I mean, it's kind of enough in the culture that you can't, can't totally escape it, but it was in a vague sort of way. Mostly, the way I grew up, religion was simply irrelevant. It just wasn't part of the story of life. I wasn't an unbeliever in any hostile sense. As a matter of fact, I kind of thought there probably would be a God there. But I have to describe myself as a, a non-believer in the sense that I didn't really have much substance to either accept or reject. There's just nothing, nothing much there. My parents were like this, a fairly strong intellectual inclination away from faith. I've often shared my father comes in and out of atheism in his life. My mother's a, a softer agnostic voice, but certainly very skeptical of all organized religion. My parents were like that. My grandparents were like that. My street was like that. My friends were all pretty much outside of the world of what most of my Christian friends now grew up in. We were, we were probably even largely unaware that that Christian world that you're familiar with even existed, at least in broad numbers, its language, its style, its slogans, its thoughts, its activities. Well, if they existed, they were somewhere else, and uh, if anywhere at all, though. Um, there, were, there were churches around me. I mean, you could see the buildings, certainly. I don't know how well attended they were. In my, my world, it seemed like if anybody went to church, they were probably Catholic. Um, but it was not close to me. 
And I suppose without thinking about it, the message was delivered to me growing up that religion was for fairly weak people who were on a, on a curve that was fading. It, it, was, it was slowly just phasing out in history. There was, there was, there was nothing there really for, for the modern world. Now, in that world, growing up, I was a messed up kid, no question. <laughs> little glamour here. I was born to be a hippie kid. That's the only way I can ever think about it. It's simply true. That was what I kind of just, I mean, my parents weren't that way exactly, but that was just the cultural milieu that, that I accepted and brought, was brought into. And a little mysteriously about me as an individual, because I was a youth like any other, I mean, I was just a kid, uh, but at the same time, some things I'm not at liberty to talk about really here, I was precocious in my own way. I, I had a kid's side, but I had an adult side, and I easily moved in my teenage years among people much older than me, and, and their world influenced me considerably. So I was young, but I was, I was kind of in, I don't want to say over my head, but I, was, I often moved in an older set, people older than me. My family in its way was a good family, but, but permissive is the only way to describe it. And so you were kind of responsible for yourself from an early age. And that would be one of the, the developments there, that you, you stood on your own two feet. You weren't coddled. You weren't sheltered. You were even exposed, and that's the way it was. Um, it had strengths growing up that way, it, but it wasn't all beautiful. And as I said, I was a little messed up. As it turns out, I was suffering some very deep wounds at the point I'm talking about from a psychedelic experience, smoking some very notoriously uh, strong Indian hash that had arrived in our neighborhood. And I was young, and so it was uh, quite an experience. That was, wasn't my only experience in that regard. There, there may have been other drugs complicating the situation, but I, I, I will never know. <laughs> my brain got messed up. But generally speaking, just I was a youth who was Probably a generous soul would have said a danger to myself. A less generous soul would probably say dangerous to other people as well. Uh, some generously might say headed for trouble. Others probably said he already arrived. Somehow, in this wounded state that at this point that I'm going to be talking about, that had been going on for a few months, I heard about people in my world that did something I'd never heard about before, which is they found faith in Jesus. This was very strange. I don't know if I could have expressed it. Uh, and in finding that, had found wholeness, purpose, healing from the kind of psychic wounds I was experiencing. And I longed for that. Now, I said I never was an atheist. There were some rumblings in my life towards the idea that there was maybe something to religion earlier on, but it always got lost. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I don't know where I heard about these people coming to Christ. This kind of this is you know it's 1970. It's uh, it's in the, in the news a little bit. It's in my neighborhood a little bit. It's in my school a little bit, and then it was in my friends a little bit. A local man, a hippie of strange and inconsistent dimensions, named Jerry Miller. He had just come from California where he had worked closely with Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee and others you may have heard about. He was not an insignificant player in that world, something of one of their lieutenants. 
as I understand it, and he'd come back to the Pittsburgh area to proclaim what was to us a new faith in Jesus. And my friends and acquaintances, some of them were drawn in. Now, for me, at first, I was keeping my distance a little. I didn't know what to make of that, but it really intrigued me. But I'd pulled back at that point into my own world. There's a movie out now called Jesus Revolution. I haven't seen it, but I'll promise you I, I have a very bad attitude about it. Prejudice, you might say. The times, the energy, the participants of what was the Jesus movement, the Jesus freaks, were emerging at that time from multiple sources. The results were both wonderful, but sometimes they were tragicomedic. They, they didn't always work very well. And of course, there was a lot of spiritual hunger in the air, and some of that went other directions completely. It was an era of cults, remember, and exploring of other religions. But the Jesus movement was most often composed of people like me, unstable, restless souls. And some of it, became superficial and fad-like. But some of the problems weren't so obvious back then. It's easier to look back now and say, no, isn't that quaint? At the time, it mattered. And it mattered a great deal to me. And I identified with it then. Identified with me. It was me and people like me. These were my people when I first heard about it. And then I joined it, I guess you'd say. It was my tribe, my identity. Or at least that's what it looked like, and I was getting closer to it. I was in my bedroom one night listening to Bob Dylan, and the thought came to mind that if these people were right, if there really was a God who was there and cared and could be touched personally, then I could only really ever be complete if I found that God, if I could live in Him somehow. So I prayed, which was not a natural experience for me. I didn't really have a model by which you prayed. And I think I spoke out loud. It's as clear as my memory can be. And I think I prefaced it with, I'm probably really slipping off the deep end finally. I'm talking to thin air. But if you're there, I want you more than anything. Tell me who you are. I'll follow. It's hard to describe just how ignorant of the content of Christian faith I was, or, and this is important, how open-minded I might have been as to where such a prayer might lead or could lead if I wasn't talking to thin air. But somewhat to my surprise, a very strong sense of peace, which had been absent from my life for a few months at that moment, came upon me. I've described it figuratively as, a, as if a small point of light came on in a dark room. Hope, real hope had appeared. I always wonder, did I become a Christian at that moment? I answer now, many years later, I hate to say, 53 years later, I answer firmly, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's possible. I had a Jewish friend, a girl, a good friend. She invited me to her Hanukkah party and I thought, well, is that where this leads? I mean, in my own youthful, dilettantish way, I thought, well, maybe, maybe it goes that direction. I don't know. I knew many hippies looked east. Uh, the woman I will marry ultimately had done that. But I knew little beyond that except that it was cool and the Beatles went to visit India and I had pictures of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in my brain. Once again, pictures that may be lost on you. I don't know. A week or so later, maybe two weeks, 
my timing is just lost. It's just lost in the story somehow or other. I went to a family New Year's Eve party. That was strange for me. I mean, you know, it's not exactly, I mean, my family could be cool, uh, you know, but, you know, party with your parents, <laughs> a party with your great aunts and uncles and, you know, what few cousins I had. Uh, in part, I was trying to avoid my druggy friends uh, at that point because I'd been burned and in part because I probably didn't have any place else to go, so I decided to go. And, you know, my family could be cool. I, I do remember my great-uncle Jim gave me some finely watered scotch whiskey on rocks, and I was able to sip that while I was talking. My family didn't have moralistic objections to such things like that. Scotch seemed a little mild after hashish. Um, and other, other, other things. <laughs> At that party mostly of much older people, was a young man uh, working with the local Episcopal church. This would be a church that will become Anglican. It's Episcopal in its more energized evangelical sense. Um, uh, and that church actually ends up mirroring the Jesus movement in its own ways. Um, the, the pastor there, the rector, John Guest, was a British man, and he'd come from the world of the Beatles, himself a musician, himself a person who had come from outside the world of faith. But this person I met, who was working with him, had come to work with him in the church, Tom Phillips, later Reverend Tom Phillips. He probably somewhat mysteriously and uncomfortably found himself at the same party, because why would he be there? Except that he'd rented a room from my great aunt Helen. And great aunt Helen, wonderful as she was, she was one of the few people in my world who had contacts with the church. Uh, she, she, with that Episcopal church, actually. But it's old guard that was not Jesus' movement connected at all. And as it got that way, oh my, she, she, they beat a retreat. Um, but I naturally latched on to Tom, you see, because he had long hair and he had a beard and he knew my music and uh, he was part of my tribe and I, there weren't many of us in that room that evening. And uh, I forget the conversation might have started out with a mutual interest in our opposition to the war in Vietnam. Um, I found out he was into Jesus. I, I would have expressed it that way only a year later. Uh, but I simply said to him, and I think he went and probably wondered what had happened, uh, uh, this kid. Uh, I said, you know, I was in my room a week or two ago, and I had this experience, and I prayed to God, wherever that is. And uh, uh, well, anyway, Tom, do you think that could be Jesus? <laughs> What would you do if somebody did that? I think he was taken a little off guard as to what was happening. He wasn't expecting this. Uh, but he did manage, God bless him, to say, yeah, possibly. And then he told me, Jesus did say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And to me, naively, casually, youthfully, mystically, even at that moment, that just seemed to be a message directly from the God I'd prayed to a week or two earlier. It's hard to describe. It, it's so fabulously naive and innocent <laughs> that it just seemed that's what it was. And I don't really remember where the conversation went from there. I, I believe, uh, you know, probably swallowed by the party, 
uh, Tom encouraged me to come to church. I got there in a couple weeks' time. Uh, he encouraged me to read the Bible, and so I didn't think we had one at home, so I borrowed one from my grandparents, an old King James Bible, and did what an intelligent person did. I started to read in Genesis. And uh, it fed me, you know, even, even through all that Elizabethan English and all that, because God kept just popping up unexpectedly. <laughs> like, well, that's how it is. You know, you're walking along, you're kind of messed up, and then suddenly God's there. You know, uh, he's talking from bushes, and he's walking by Abraham's tent and all this stuff. Just like, yeah, that's, that's how it is. Jesus hardly got into the picture at this point. <laughs> I didn't understand any of the concepts of faith at all. I don't know where the conversation went. But what happens from this point on is I live in a strangely mingled world of two planes of fellowship. Uh, it, it takes a while to sort of sort out because I'm still a, a very much a newbie, uh, but I, I uh, end up being a strangely mixed uh, Episcopalian church-going Jesus freak, and often Saturday night contrasted boldly with Sunday morning. Sometimes my Jesus freak friends called on me to interpret for them this weird world where people actually went to church and wore neckties. I remember a very, uh, very big conversation where somebody had come to one of our meetings in a suit. And afterwards, we all sat on the floor while my Jesus Freak friends discussed how you couldn't possibly dress like that and be a Christian. Uh, and, and, but they looked to me because I went, I went to the regular church too and, you know, say, well, what do you think? Well, you could be a Christian. You know, it's kind of a weird way to dress, but, you know, could, could be that he'd be a Christian. You know, it's a, this necktie stuff, I don't know. Well... Well, talking about with my wife just the other day, I was thinking about it. I said, you know, I, I think, I think the balance is correct, that I would have understood myself as a Jesus freak who went to Episcopal church, not an Episcopalian who went to Jesus freak meetings. <laughs> and, and I think I was perceived that way, you see, because that church didn't have a lot of people walking in with jeans and long hair and foul mouths the way uh, someone like me would have at that time. Yes, it took me a long time to... It's taking me a long time to clear up language. But I resist all my generalizations a little bit. I, I don't know. What I know is important is that Jesus was the heart of it all. It would take weeks to make up for my ignorance and learn a vocabulary that explained adequately to me what had happened to me. I'd been born again. I'd been saved. I'd been touched by the power of God. And it was healing me. Not all at once, but healing me. Well, it's so hard um, to convincingly describe this as I was in Jesus freak mode. I was often around people in that world whose testimonies were very much like my own. We seem to have been mysteriously called in from an outside world, surprising to ourselves, kind of in shock almost to ourselves. How did we get here? How, what voice called us into this room? And you'd sit in the room and you'd say, he came, Mike came in. <laughs> How did he show up here? Uh, suddenly God and Jesus just popped up. They were in the picture and, and people were drawn to it. My world today is made up almost exclusively of Christians who grew up in Christian families and around the church. That is so very different shall I say, than that world of Jesus freaks I knew and had fellowship with, oh, I don't know, five years, six years? 
And then one of the great mysteries of my life that I can't really still explain or I'm still pondering happened, which is, what happened to those people? Where did they go? What happened to that movement? What happened to that world that was part of people coming to Christ from my tribe? Well, I suppose the parable of the sower took care of a lot of it. And I do know, speaking of my experience, that the inherent instability of the players who were being called in meant that they would not be the kind of people who would create a solid legacy or go in a straight line. I watched many people flake out. But it was a mysterious movement of a moment. If anyone looks back, filmmaker or writer, and tells you that they understood it or they had a plan or were in charge or even know now what to think about it, I'm cynical. I don't think they know. I think they're mistaken. It was a strange, mystical moment of history. But let me share some theories with you and recognize these are my theories. I I don't think anybody's in a position to confirm them or refute them, really. Just the way I've thought about what happened. Where did that go? Well, one of the things I think happened was, and I saw it happen, were that um, the old gospel machinery of evangelism, evangelism, fundamentalism, and Pentecostalism reinserted itself and put itself in front of the movement. Now, what am I referring to there? Well, I'm not sure entirely, but it seemed like what was sort of of its own and creating itself suddenly gets grabbed by the old powers and influence. Of course, they had the resources in the organization and they'd been at it for a while. But in some ways, this, this mirrors the, industri- the, 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 the uh, military-industrial complex. In, in the, in the, as, as the evangelical movement unfolds in the 20th century, um, it's, it's uh, distancing from its old church-denominational apparatus because it was cynical about its liberal theology and things, um, it created and put in its place something probably worse, in my opinion, just sort of a, an entrepreneurial, commercial, um, celebrity and media-based Christian faith that drives the show. Well, that got in there. And, um, but at the same time, because of its, its own background, it, it, it it sent cultural signals and values that would have been totally foreign to the Jesus freaks. Most of us would have strongly resisted the idea that we could ever be closely identified with any of that stuff. It just, it just wasn't what we were or who. It's actually kind of like the old establishment we'd already <laughs> decided against somewhere. But uh, what a strange thing. I still have trouble identifying with a lot of that machinery. I don't like it. It's full of cultural trappings that are foreign to me. It's it's full of obscene salaries, media and uh, celebrity-based ministry. It's it's not me. It doesn't speak for me. I don't want it. It's foreign to me. But something else happened, too. I mean, while that machinery was slowly trying to jump in front of a movement that it maybe thought it could lead but couldn't, Um, approaching the late 1970s, something else happened, and I think it was part of that good old gospel machinery. Good old, um, you do get the fact I'm saying this ironically, right? Um, But it showed some of the pathological DNA of that apparatus too, and that was with the rise of neo-fundamentalism 
Um, well, we're talking about a couple of things here. But to me, it's narrow to the point of closed minds, harsh righteousness. It's opinionated scriptural interpretations. But most significantly, it's called to politics and to a culture war. And then the gospel that was come unto me became something different. It was encumbered with an agenda that would have simply turned off and turned away people such as myself who had come to Christ from the outside. We were no longer the wounded who found Christ because Christ tends to show up. We would have been the enemies in a culture war. Our sins were somehow more vile than theirs. We were taking down Western civilization. And granted, we were loose-lipped and loose-hipped, but it... Uh, uh, you know, we had our own issues, but so did they, you see. The new agenda was not finding wholeness in a spiritual wasteland that we thought of as the world, a wasteland that was not necessarily of one generation's or era's making, but somehow this idea of preserving a mythological view of society or Western civilization that at least on this side of a lot of scholarship, I say, never ever really existed in the first place, uh, something else is, is in the place of the gospel. And the result of all this that I can see, that I believe I've seen in my own life, is that what was a lot of people coming to Christ from out of the blue, from out of strange corners, becomes a trickle and now becomes almost non-existent. I rarely today meet a Christian who wasn't in some way raised close to the church or a Christian family. How different, how depressingly different that is to me. Well, God will work in each year as he sees fit. So here's a way of just showing up <laughs> in burning bushes and walking by your tent. <laughs> he's, he's there, I'm sure of that. I think he still loves finding lost coins and lost sheep. I think there will always be new arrivals. But this is what I'd suggest. This is your older brother talking to you. Um, do not allow that machinery to continually impose its mold on the free movement of the Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That machinery and its champions have its own story and its own problems. They don't need to be mine. They don't need to be yours. And second advice from an older brother, drop the cultural and political war mistake. It's an unequal yoke. It always has been and it always will be. Bring your message back to what it was. We should be inviting the world. No other agenda than this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.